I love sport because, because of its purity, of its simplicity. But it gives you a sense of identity, whether you as an individual or as a nation. And that's why we love sport. You're listening to Falling in Sport with your host, Uzamo Moloy. Before we get started, I thought it best to explain the why for the series. Somewhere along the way, a lot of us fall out of love with sport. Whether we're disenfranchised, disillusioned, or we're forced to grow up an adult and told to stop playing FIFA. Hashtag true story. But what the coronavirus pandemic and subsequent lockdowns has done is actually pique people's interest in sport again, even if it's just as a pastime. I've been working in and around sport for almost a decade now, and I found myself falling out of love with sport. A truly weird space to find myself in. But as lockdowns have eased up around the world, people have taken this as an opportunity to rethink and reset what's important or not. Similarly with sport, I've been thinking, what if this is an opportunity for us to decide what we fall in love with? This is a podcast about falling in love, one sport at a time, to remind ourselves why we love sport. It's part narrative, guest-oriented, you'll hear voices of actual sports fans, and maybe some things you didn't necessarily know. No need to have been the one who played for the first team at school to listen either. This is also for those who never got to play, because sport at its most basic level is an exercise in hope, and we could do with more of that right now. In this first outing, we're talking cricket. Why? Because South Africans love cricket too. Plus, would have been too obvious to begin with football. We'll get to it, trust me. In this episode, award-winning coach Jeffrey Toyana tells us about the sport that saved his life. And I catch up with cricketer Solo Nguyeni on his battle against an autoimmune disease. And with that, let's fall in sport. This game called cricket had its origin in quiet places and lives on in equally quiet places, deep in the hearts of those who love it. One of my most vivid cricket memories is from the mid-1990s. I grew up in Orlando East and like any kid from Soweto, I played in the street. Well, most of the time. I'm not sure if the Proteas were playing a series, but what I am sure of is me and my friends playing street cricket with two beer crates, a makeshift bat, and a tennis ball. But what sticks out the most about this memory is that mid-game, a flying squad car pulled up. The flying squad was the closest South Africa ever got to a rapid response police team. Remember, this was the mid-90s, and the advent of democratic South Africa had happened just the other day. Now from that squad car came out two white officers in full bulletproof vests and guns. What did they want? To play cricket, of course. Incidentally, coach Jeffrey Toyana is also from Orlando, though he never quite played with the cops. Yes, yes. I mean, I grew up in Soweto in Orlando East. Uh, Like the late 80s, we're very, very tough, you know. And uh, yes, police will come and just chase us for nothing. (laughs) And it was one of those things that when you saw like that police big car, which we used to call hippo. Yeah. It just and you know, like you have to run, you know. And then I was caught one day, and then I spent about an hour there. 
I think as a 12-year-old, I mean, I spent an hour at the back of that hippo, Ooh. you know, and uh, and it was not pleasant. But uh, yes, yes, here we are now. <laughs> Jeffrey has won every accolade a coach can hope to win in the South African cricket franchise system. South African cricket as a whole is under the spotlight at the moment. And most media conversations with Coach Toyana tend to go straight to that. But we're going to avoid the low-hanging fruit for now. I want to start off this conversation with you on a lighter note. Okay. Your nickname is GNT. Right? <laughs> <laughs> is this true? Yes, yes. This is yeah, true. Yeah, that's true. Like that, yeah, like that comes from my initials. Jeffrey Richard G and then Toyana. So GT. GT. So GNT, yes. Ah, okay. Yes. Okay. So now, <laughs> linking back onto my memory about my first, my most vivid cricket memory, I want to ask you mm. a question. Or a series of questions. Where were you mm. when uh, the the Australians call it the miracle? I don't think we call it that. Where were you when the Proteas lost the 1999 Cricket World Cup semi-final against Australia? Oh, jeepers. Um, I was still playing for Gauteng at the time. And I, um, I mean, I can remember it so well because I was staying with a good friend of mine, uh, Johnson Maffa. We were staying in Bears Valley, you know, like, and we were, and we watched the t- uh, like, uh, and the, the game on TV, and uh, yeah, it's heartbreaking, heartbreaking. Like Lance Klusner, you know, like like it pulled us out of trouble yeah. in a few games before that. I can still remember Hansi Cronier, like, and and, and Bob Uma with those mics, you know, like the, that they had with them. <laughs> so like that World Cup just brings those type memories. I mean, Herschel Gibbs. Um, catch, yeah. which I still believe, you know, it was a catch. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, but I mean, you know, like that one run, you know, and we still a few balls, you know, to uh, like to spare. And Lance Luzner playing so well on the day. Uh, yes, I was with Johnson Maffa and we nearly, nearly uh, like I broke our TV. You know, tell you what, <laughs> you, may have, you may have almost broken your TV. I remember crying, going into my mother's bed and crying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a tough one. I cried. It was a tough one. Um, where were you when South Africa pulled off the 438-run chase against Australia? Um, I was at the Wanderers. Oh, but, wow. um, you know, yes, but I left halfway through. Oh. I mean, I saw that, you now, like the Aussies, I saw the Aussies were killing us. Oh. You know, like, <laughs> as the score went past 400, I thought, no way, no chance. I'm going home. And then I went home and then, and then halfway, because at the time I was, uh, um, I was staying close to the Wanderers. Then as I got home, I mean, like I saw Herschel Gibbs, you know, um, you know, and Graham Smith at the time, like we're playing a few shots, you know, I think halfway after 25 overs, I think we we're over 200 or yeah. something. And then I was still with my good mate, Johnson Maffa, <laughs> and we decided to drive back, you know, to the one because, yeah, because we did have passes, you know, at the time, because we were there at the one run. So it was easy to come in and out. Yes. And we saw the end of it. I mean, like the last hundred runs also, like we saw that special, special game. Like Macayantini to third man there. Yeah. You know, like that was really, really something special. I mean, Herschel Gibbs, I mean, like he was unbelievable, you know, in that game. So very, very good memory, you know, like of South African cricket. And also like like it brought everyone together, you it know, did, like the did. crowd, you could see, 
black and white. I mean, we're so excited. There were the people crying in the stands. Hey. <laughs> I mean, it was a very, very special day. And I'm still having some uh, 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 like a goosebumps. As you're you know, talking, like as I'm, talking I'm, I'm experiencing it, it right as now. As I'm talking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. And, and, and to round off my questions of where were you, uh, I, I, pref- yeah. I preface this with that Coach Toyana is a Twitter troll in that <laughs> he is fast becoming my favorite person to follow on Twitter. His meme game is on point. When Kaiser Chiefs plays, when Kaiser Chiefs loses, Coach Toyana is there. He's there, subtweeting. People are, he, he, you're amazing. You're, you're really my favorite right now. So I want to know, where were you yeah. when Sundowns won the CAF Champions League? And how did you respond oh. to that? Jeepers, I was so, uh, I think we were driving back from Kimberley. I think I was still coach of the Lions. And then we were sitting on the bus because like the game was late, I think. Yeah, uh, we were sitting out. on the bus. I still remember, yes, I still remember sitting with Stephen Cook or Neil McKenzie, I think. Um, guys like Kahiso were like on the bus because we played a four-day game in Kimberley. Okay. And then we drove back. You know, like all our phones were dead at the time and then like we didn't get oh. you know like that information like that we wanted then as we got off the bus i mean i got into my car and then i heard that sundowns had won the game i mean i was so i was so excited because i was there at you the know the nil. first round of the game i think uh, yes okay. yes i was there like like at the first round game yeah and then us going you know away and winning it that side i mean wow like that was a special 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 day um i love sundowns I've always loved Sundowns and then uh, growing up as well as a township guy. You know, like I thought I was going to play for Sundowns growing up, but uh, that things took, you know, like a 10 and then I ended up, you know, playing cricket. <laughs> My favorite cricket memory has to be from 2003 uh, when South Africa was hosting the Cricket World Cup. The Proteas were practicing in Benoni at Willowmore Park. Uh, and at the time, I was one of the Easterns junior players and we were called um, to come and bowl to the Proteas in the nets. So that was truly memorable. When South Africa played Pakistan and I remember being at the Wanderers and Quentin Dukak had such an amazing game. It was a Thursday night, I even remember. And he he was on top form. And my favorite part of it was because him, him and A.B. de Villiers, AB was still mentoring him at that time and he was just, Quentin had played such a magnificent innings. But then after the game, because he still kind of wasn't media trained, Quentin and AB were like literally sitting shoulder to shoulder. And every time Quentin would give us like a five second answer, like AB would be like, no, add more words, give us more context. So I think just that game itself, it was it was Quentin's home ground at the time because he was still with the Lions. Him kind of finding himself within that team, establishing himself as a leader within the side. Definitely the 438 game, not just because it was such a phenomenal game of cricket, uh, but also as the first year in, in varsity in Rez. And in Rez, as first years, you weren't allowed to have a have a TV on your in your room or on your corridor. But a couple of guys had TV cards in their, in their computers and laptops. And I remember about 50 of us crammed into this tiny single room um, just stuffed in there like stars, sardines. I'm um, enjoying those fantastic final few seconds, and it was just such a great vibe when when Bouch hit those last runs. Take a trip to Orlando East in 2020, and you still won't find a cricket ground in the football-obsessed township. From wannabe footballer in the late 1980s 
to being a cricketer is a big leap, considering the lack of facilities even back then. So I guess the question is, why cricket? My dad um, is an ex-cricketer. Okay. Um, he was very, very sporty. He played for the Black 11 in the 1970s and 80s. So, so I still remember as a kid, I think I was two years or three years old, you know, like when my dad left for cricket, you know, I used to drive on with him in my underpants, you know, <laughs> and just go to the games. And my mom will always complain and say, you know, at least take some trousers. Then I'll just go to, you know, I'll just go with my dad I mean, from eight o'clock in the morning. And then we come back around six, seven at night. Wow. I'm like, that's what I used to enjoy. I think I was two, three at the time. And then, you know, like as, you know, like as any township uh, boy, um, age 10, 11, 12, started playing soccer, you know, age 14, 15. Like I've played for every club, basically, in Orlando East, you know. And then, and then I went to trials as well at Jomo Cosmos because Jomo Sono is from Orlando. Yes. So his club was just around the corner. So um, to go to trials there, I was a defender. Okay. Like I was not too bad. Like okay. my nickname was Bricks. Ah, you know, like was Bricks. Zones. <laughs> <laughs> I used to call me Bricks. And then, yes, you know, like as you know, playing in the townships, um, you know, like I started to smoke when I was still, what, 15, 16. Um, I started to get into trouble, you know, like, and my dad uh, uh, picked this up quickly. And then he gave me like an ultimatum, basically, because he tried before, like with his other sons, and like that his sons must play cricket. Because he was very sporty, I mean, he played baseball, and he played cricket as well. So, yeah, so like he saw that I was getting into trouble. And then he basically told me that if I want to stay like in his house, you know, like I must go play cricket or else I must stay in his house. That ultimatum went a long way into shaping who Jeffrey Toyana has become. With the bit of talent he says he had, Toyana went on to make the Coca-Cola under-19 side of the then Transvaal. But that early success was mixed with financial difficulty, challenging his very dedication to the sport. Many a time, his family having to choose between buying bread or using that same money to send him to training. So it was that tough, and then, you know, I persevered. I mean, you know, I kept going. You know, I knew I had talent. Um, I matriculated at Orlando High in 93, you know, but, like, there was no money at home, like, to take me to university. And cricket, you know, like, was my way out in a way because I matriculated in 93, and then in 94, like, I was invited to Lords, you know, like, wow. in England, you know, you know, you know, as part, yes, yes, as part of the MCC, you know, like young cricketers were players from all over England, you know, like I selected. And then, you know, it's like an academy type thing. So like I went there, I spent six months there, you know, like I had a good time there. And I was close to signing as well for Surrey okay. at the time, you know, but I was still a young, so to boy, you know, I missed home. You know, like I wanted to go back home and eat a maquinha, you know, <laughs> snogfish and those type of you things. Prefer, you know? you prefer fish and chips? I mean, come on. <laughs> Yeah, you know, Cassie <laughs> you know, boy, Cassie boy, and Cassie mentality. Yes, I came back and then then I played a bit for Transvaal B. And then, yeah, then I got my first contract, you know, at Transvaal at the time. I played Transvaal B mostly in 95, 96. And then, yeah, since then, you know, you know, I've not looked back. But growing up, it was not easy. Like you're coming from Soweto where like there's no facilities and like there's no cricketing schools. 
what were the perceptions I'd imagine because like like we said before, Soweto is a football is a football community. What were the perceptions yes, yes. of the game where you were growing Orlando? What was it like for other kids? And then how was it amongst adults? Because you say your because your father played. So what was yes. the what was the attitude towards towards um towards cricket? And even in that time, who were your heroes? Well, well like the perception um and the people there at the time, like they were just thinking, you know, like these kids with big bags. I mean, like what are they <laughs> doing? You know, like are they playing, you know. The white man sports. I mean, I still remember, like, like when I went to grab a taxi, you know, like at the station in Orlando, close to the police station yes. there, you know, like with my big bags, and I'll catch abuse from people around. <laughs> hey, Hansi Cronier, Hansi Cronier, <laughs> you know, you know, like there was no cricket there. Like, like we didn't have any heroes. Yeah, you know, like only my dad was pushing me on the side, and uh, you know, like there was nothing. I mean, like, like we had to start it up and take those insults at the time. I mean, like there were gangs in my car I mean, like, Ikabasa, like, yes. at the time, of terrorizing, you know, Orlando East. Then we'll come with those big bags and they'll ask us, have you got AK-47? <laughs> I mean, what's going on? Where are you going? You know, it wasn't easy, but we persevered, you know. Sure. And, like, there were so many talented, talented players like that we never saw because, like, they did not persevere. Mm. You know, the talented guys were more talented than me. You know, the guys with, uh, like, natural skills, yeah, but we never saw those guys, and I know them. I can name them. You know, you know, it is quite sad what's happened. You know, at the time to us, and it's sad now. Like when you see that there's still no facilities in the townships. Mm-hmm. It's got challenges in the township. Our kids are into Nyawope. You know, like our kids are into challenges. Like you know, and because like there's no, um, you know, fields or or places where kids can play. Sure. You know, I for one, you know. I was saved by cricket because sure. if I didn't play cricket, you know, see that I'll be dead now or I'll be in prison because all my friends ended up dead or in mm. prison. Now, you were mm. predominantly you were a batsman in your playing days um, for, mo- for the most part. Yes. And you, if yes. you were to describe batting to someone who's only ever been a, a spectator and they never got to wield the willow, as they say, what was your favorite thing about batting? Is it the sound of the, of the ball of the bat was it just being there, imposing your will on on bowlers? But what was that thing that was like, I love doing this? Yeah, just for me, I mean, growing up, I mean, uh, yes, the facilities were tough. I mean, there was times we training in um, bad, bad, bad conditions. Like, yeah. that's why, you know, it's tough to get black batters mm. strictly from the township to go through and play first class cricket because it was tough. I sure. mean, the places we train in, but for me, you know, the, uh, like the biggest thing I love with betting, um, it's something that I learned very, very late in my career. You know, like when I was still playing. Okay. And like that, you spend time, you know, at the crease. Just stay there. Stay there at the crease. Uh, but bet on, you know, on ball and those type of things. And, uh, and uh, uh, you know, like that's what basically for me, like that bet, you know, like on ball, going qua. You know, for me, like that's... Yeah, like that's what I love about betting, and also like when there's a fast bowler, a guy who bowls quick, you know, a guy who wants to hurt you, and you fighting it through there. Yeah. You know, for me, like that's you know like special. I've had my battles with fast bowlers as well, guys like Alan Donald running in wanting to kill you, and you <laughs> fighting through like those processes. You know, you know, like it was. Uh, 
it was like something you know nice and something special I love cricket mainly because there's just so many factors involved. It's literally not just about the bat and ball. If the wind blows in a certain direction, if the screen irritates a bowler, if the fans are a little too loud, if you throw in a little bit of abuse, all of that comes into the picture and kind of creates whether it's test cricket, ODI or T20, it creates this cauldron of excitement where every little thing matters. Nothing is taken for granted when it comes to a game. It's, uh, just such a beautiful all-round sport. Uh, tests you emotionally, physically, um, mentally. You know, it's about being able to concentrate for five days, being at the top of your game, and then just absolutely bringing the flair for two hours or, 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 or 20 overs. Uh, it's not just about bowling and in-swinger now, it's about setting him up so that when that out-swinger comes, you get the outside edge or, or, or rotating the strike and then hitting the boundary at the perfect time of the over. It's, it's like chess for champions. Because as much as it's a team sport, there's so much dependency on individual skills or talent. Um, if you're a bowler running up to, I don't know, take a wicket, curb the runs, no one else has that ball in your hand. You've got to do your job. Uh, if you're a fielder under a high ball, for instance, waiting to take a catch, that could end a big batting partnership. Um, or if you're a batsman trying to save a game, uh, yeah, so much depends on the individual, but it's also a beautiful team sport. GNT's love for the game shines most through his desire to mentor talent. He did this at the Lions as head coach for over five years and now as assistant coach at the Titans. So, coach, who are you most proud to have seen take the next step? Oh, stupid. That, that's a tough question. Oh, maybe give me your top and, five. Uh, yeah, okay, okay. Give me your top five. <laughs> yeah, for me, for me, I mean, obviously, um, guys like Temba, you know, coming through, um, you know, a guy like Vian Mulder for me, who I played at the Lions when he was still doing grade 12. Oh. I mean, like he was in metric. And then within a year, I mean, he was playing for South Africa. For me, like that's really, really is, 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 like something that I'm proud of. And going back to Temba, him getting that test hundred, you know, like at Newlands. I mean, I'm like it brought tears to my eyes. I mean, they, yeah, but because I've seen his hard work. Temba used to come at the Wanderers at the time, you know, six o'clock in the morning, you know, indoor center, like the two of us, you know, just throwing balls, you know, like in the bowling machine for days and days. And for him to come through as well and get that 100, you know, at Newlands was really, really something special. And the guy like Stephen Cook, I mean, you know, you know, you know, he scored runs, scored lots of runs, but he was not getting his opportunity. But that's the guy, you know, who never gave up, kept going, he kept going. And uh, I think at age 34, I mean, he got his chance finally to play for South Africa, you know, and he got a, you know, Test 100 on debut. You know, at um, at Supersport Park, like those memories for me, really, really special. I mean, a guy like Quentin de Kock, yeah, you know, who I've known since he was 16 years old. <laughs> you, you know, for him to be the Quentin de Kock that he is today, you know, I've seen his work. I've seen him at the one from from nine o'clock until two o'clock, just hitting balls. You know, like that makes me really, really proud. I mean, Pangiso, um, Eddie Lee, um, Brent Pretorius. You know, kind of like Rassi van der Dusen. You know, for me, like like it's a mixture, you know, you know, of all those players. Uh, like that makes me proud. I mean, like like I'm proud of them, and I'm not taking any credit, like, yes. uh, like for their achievements. Uh, yeah, but because I mean, you know, it is like they're like hard work. 
like they've put in the work, you know, and they've got the rewards. And like that what makes me um um you know very, very, you know, happy. I mean guys like Alviro Pirasin as well. I mean, you know, it makes me like very, very happy. Going into this episode, I was tempted to sidestep the current discourse in and around cricket in Mzansi. But that would be naive. The uncomfortable conversations about equality and representation in South African cricket must happen and should continue. And I thank and acknowledge those leading this necessary conversation, including the first black African head coach in the South African franchise system. There were like injustices, you know, like, like of the past, which were done to people. Mm-hmm. And people are coming out now like to, like to speak about those things. Uh, but... But uh, like the perpetrators, you know, you know, you know, of those things, you know, like I'm not taking accountability, which for me is something that's going to take us backwards. You know, we must be, you know, accountable and take responsibility, you know, of what's happened in the past. Like there is no doubt. I'm like, I was part of those 40 ex coaches and cricketers mm. where each and every one of us have our own stories. If we can all tell our stories, you know, it will, you know, it will take, um, you know, our cricket down. But for me, it's good that we are telling stories. Um, like for me, like like that, that's the lessons like that we need, like for us to move, you know, in a positive way. And also the biggest thing, like those players, like that, uh, the biggest thing that I think that we're looking for. You know, until uh, 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 we don't want favors, and we don't want revenge. All we want is equality. Up until we can get that right, we can move forward. Because at the moment, like, is in big trouble. There's a lot happening. There's a lot happening, and and I dread to think what the players in the system at the moment, you know, are thinking. And because I think it's a blessing in disguise that we are under COVID now. Just imagine if there was a test series being played, mm. you know, in this climate at the moment. You know, it was going to be just chaotic. So for me, I think like this is the time for us, you know, like, like just to reflect, you know, and sit down, you know, in one room and iron out this thing and make sure that we put cricket, you know, at number one, number one, number one. With that in mind, two things can be true at the same time. We want to see South African cricket with opportunities for all on an equal playing field. It's not at the moment, and that must change with all stakeholders being involved. And at the same time, we still want people to keep playing the game, if not now, when it's safe to do so again. When the coast is clear, we want previous, present, and future generations of South Africans to enjoy cricket. And one person who's adamant to enjoy his cricket again is Solo Ngweni. In 2019, at age 25, the all-rounder went from a healthy physical specimen to literally being a shadow of himself within a matter of months. While Guyan Barre syndrome may have put a pause on his life and career, he's intent on pressing play again. Solo, over the last couple of months, I've seen the content you've posted online. It's almost like a, a journal of your ongoing recovery. And after each post, I've come away thinking I've taken so much for granted in my own life. 
like being able to take a simple step? So, you know, look, it's two things. One, obviously, I didn't have a lot of the, the content um, mm-hmm. since my phone was Yes. And two, I was still getting to a point where I was, like, comfortable with showing myself in this way. Sure. You know? um, because for some time, even when I looked in a mirror and I saw myself, you know, while I was in therapy, I, I, I couldn't sit in front of a mirror because I couldn't believe how drastically I had changed, yeah. you know, and um, I was struggling with accepting that for a long time. Hmm. Um, but I just think, you know, things happen naturally and eventually one day I was just like, you know what, you know, let me just put it out there because so many people are asking about where I am, how do I feel, how do I look, what's it like? And I just felt like it would give people a, a better idea about where I was and where I've been. And also, like I've mentioned to you, it, it, it formed it as, a, as a form of therapy for me, you know, in that even now when I go through some challenges or mm-hmm. feel like I'm not really progressing as fast as I would like, I look back and I see the journey and I see that, okay, there are points in the journey where it's been worse. And in my mind, I never knew how I would even get out of that particular situation. But eventually I did, you know. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's been quite, quite hectic. It's quite the journey. <laughs> yeah. And look, even me, before this whole thing happened to me, I was probably the same, you know. I, I just went on with life, like I was saying, chasing goals and, and maybe neglecting the simpler things or empathizing with people that have different challenges to, to what I had, you know, and maybe, maybe this was why I'm going through this, you know, to be able to appreciate the simpler things. And, you know, with GBS, it's so interesting that this disease is like the only neurological disease that you get better. The other ones deteriorate, you know, so it's crazy. It's like, I will eventually get better. It's just going to be one hell of a process. And me going through each stage of this process truly has, you know, made me appreciate those simple things. I mean, there was a stage where for three to four months, I wasn't able to talk, drink, uh, eat, you know, um, the way we communicated, I had a board with letters A to Z and I would have to blink on the letter, you know, to try and spell words, you know, and and that would take 10 minutes to just get one word, you know, stuff like that. Like I used to have, dreams of drinking water just drinking water oh, literal perspective dreams, guy. you know and 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 you are, it's so amazing when you're just able you're able to get to that point where you can do these things you know like truly uh, it's, it's crazy like when i i had to learn how to talk again you know from scratch and sure. and it's just amazing how the human body is actually set up mm-hmm. on the inside you know it's it, it totally fascinates me and I had no idea before. Like, so you don't have to feel bad about, you know, seeing me going through what I'm yeah. going through and, and being like, oh, but that guy's going through. No, it's just, I think when you, when you, when there's perspective, you know, mm-hmm. I think, and to acknowledge that actually being able to do everyday things is, is really a blessing. Sure. It really is. Those are really awesome reflections and, and thank you for sharing that. And if any of you guys want to listen to, more of a story about uh, what Solo has been through in the last 18 months, be sure to listen to the Halfway Up Middle podcast. Uh, just search for it on Spotify. And um, Solo, is, I think you, you, his episode is called The Warrior, and I think it's aptly, aptly named. Now, Solo, 
what's the earliest cricket childhood memory that you have? So the first childhood memory um, has to be me playing driveway cricket every single day with my best friends um, from my junior school. Okay. And funny enough, I probably got into cricket because of them. Oh. You know, because when I was when I was young, sort of six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, uh, I was a football soccer fanatic, <laughs> and I just wanted to be a pro footballer. I was looking up to Lewis Eagle, you know, and RG Shevchenko. Too so, you know, I was I really just wanted to be a footballer, yeah. But as a result of my, my friends and my close circle, you know, at that age, you just you just become whatever everyone else is doing, yeah. you know. And my friends were like absolute cricket fanatics. And funny enough, like after I started playing cricket, it was just like some kind of bug bit me, and I couldn't stop, you know. And we were playing this drug, you know, when you take the ball to make it swing and yes, the tennis ball, and sometimes you make it wet so it's more. <laughs> Six and out, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, so I, I definitely cherish, you know, those moments and memories that I have and actually have to thank my friends for the cricket career that I ended up um, having. <laughs> um, so, Solo, what do you love the most about cricket? I think because the game is so complex, you know, and it truly, you need to be a student of the game yeah. to play cricket. You, you can't just pick up and play. You know, you really have to understand the game, understand situations, um, so many different techniques to learn in terms of bowling, batting, so many different shots, so many different rules, you know, all the different equipment and gear we wear. It's such a complex sport. And it truly does prepare you for, for life in a way. Mm. Because if I can give you an example, you know, you could be training the week before a game, feeling like a million bucks, hitting the ball so well in the net and you make off your first ball of the match, you know? <laughs> and, and and you were feeling like a million bucks before that, but now you were like on one high all the way to another low immediately. So it's such a good test of character mm. and truly is a challenge. And and that's why I love playing cricket because I love competing and I love using strategy, you know, to overcome and to win. And I think cricket encapsulates all of those things that you need in order to become, you know, consistently uh, a winner. Because essentially in cricket, you, you lose or you fail a lot more than you succeed, you know. Hmm. You, you'll score two, three ducks and then a 20 and then you score your 100, you know. Or you'll go two, three games without taking wickets and then you take a fiver. <laughs> so by nature, it's set up for you to be mentally strong in order to be successful at the game. You really have to understand and accept that you will probably fail more than you succeed, you know. Sure. Now, uh, we're all living in the time of social distancing. We're in the midst of, of a epidemic, the coronavirus. You yourself are a survivor of the coronavirus. Now, as we're social distancing, people say out of sight, out of mind. How do you keep the love for the game alive in you in a time of, of, of isolation, in a time where you're not even, where, where you're not even cleared right now to play? Well, I've, I've had a lot of uh, practice with self-isolation since yeah. for the past year of my life. I was in the hospital room, <laughs> so uh, I, I had practice and I got ahead of the game before everybody else. Um, but I think for me, you know, I just have this extreme hunger in that I'm not done. And I, and I feel like I have unfinished business with, with cricket, you yeah. know. 
And this is one of the motivations that gets me up every single day and, and let, allows me to be able to, to go to therapy and do what I need to do because truly, you know, it's not easy going to therapy five times a week for two hours a day, yeah. every single day, every single week, you know. But, but you find ways of motivating yourself to do what needs to be done. And I think because of this hunger that I have of, of feeling like I'm not done and that I have more to give, you know, to the game and that I don't want to allow this disease and, you know, this pandemic and all that's happening on the outside world to derail where I was supposed to go in the game of cricket, you know, where I truly feel I was supposed to end up. And, you know, I, I feel like there's, there's a lot more uh, to give from me to the game. Yeah. And not, that's not to say that I'm not appreciative of what the game has been able to do for me over the past, you know, eight years of being a pro and, you know, before that, playing schoolboy cricket. So it's, it's, I feel like there's a, I have a lot more to give and that's what motivates me to keep going in this game. And, you know, you, you know how it is with sports. You, you dedicate so much growing up. You yeah. sacrifice so much. You know, all the holidays with your friends were going on holidays and chilling with family. You were playing cricket tournaments in the sun, 30 degrees burning. You know, like trying to make a name for yourself and trying to win games. You know, you, you don't forget all of the little sacrifices you've made along the way and for me I just want to fulfill my potential of which I, I don't think I've, I've reached that final level as yet so that's what what keeps me going and, and keeps me ticking and, and and why I feel you know um, I have this hunger for this for yeah. the game still thank you bro thank you so much for that I think your story in itself is a vehicle for hope which is why sport is when, when you do get back onto that field it is a, it's not it's not everything but it, but but it, it's 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 not everything but it is such an important vehicle for hope honestly even even though if it's like a, a club game where no one's there no one yeah. cares i think i'm losing my i promise you i can't wait to just hit a cricket ball and hear that oh, yes a bad oh my word like i'm i'm frothing i'm frothing <laughs> Rugby World Cup winning captain Sia Kolisi was recently asked, was winning the Webb Ellis Trophy a catalyst for change in South Africa? In his answer, Kolisi said, sport is not the answer. It's definitely not the answer. But it does bring people together in a way that little else does. Sia's right on both fronts. And I'll take it a step further and say sport gives us leverage. Leverage to inspire. Leverage to engage. Leverage to influence those who can make decisions for good. And at the very least, an excuse to give hope. Thank you for listening to this first episode of Falling in Sport. We'd like to hear your thoughts on what stood out for you and what's helped you fall in love with the game again. Also, if you're a diehard fan of another sport and would like your voice featured in the memories and thoughts for upcoming episodes, you can send us an email at fallinginsport at gmail.com. On the next episode of Falling in Sport, we go to the court. To make sure you don't miss out on future episodes, subscribe to Falling in Sport on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and IONO FM. Talk to you then.